This morning I'll be reading the scripture from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's almighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Please to John chapter 2, Gospel of John chapter 2. I want to start off this morning with playing a little bit of Let's Imagine, which I know is some of your favorite games to do in church. Um, but I really want you to try and think of yourself, if you can, as the head of a news division of ABC News, Fox News, or CNN. Or maybe better, you can see yourself as the editor of the New York Times or maybe even the Washington Post. But whether you choose to see yourself as calling the shots from one of America's biggest names in news, either on television or newsprint, here's the question. How would you cover the most important news story in your journalism career? Let me raise the stakes a little bit. What if you had before you the opportunity to cover the most important story in the history of the world? How would you cover that most important story in your journalism career? And while that soaks in for a moment, let me say this. The writers of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really weren't journalists. Not in the terms of how we think of them today. But they personally faced the question that I've just asked you to consider. How would you cover the most important news story of your journalism life. Nothing of the equivalent of an ABC News Tonight or the New York Times existed in their day. But these men no doubt had a sense, I promise you, of what a history-making event was or what a key event that was occurring in their lifetime happened to be. And then one gets dropped in their lives. Unexpectedly out of the blue, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Their entire culture, the Jews, had been expecting somebody, had been promised somebody that God would send that would be the Messiah, be the deliverer, be the savior of Israel. And the gospel writers not only meet him in Jesus, but were his disciples for three years each of them personally witnessing his amazing life, his crushing death, and then his stunning resurrection and his mind-boggling ascension into heaven. Now top all that off, each experienced the prompting of God. Don't understand exactly how this works, but both Matthew, or all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each experienced a prompting of God to write a story about all of that to make others aware of his impact and significance in our world. And that is how we have what we know as the four Gospels. Now you need to know these guys had help. Divine help, the scripture tells us, when it comes to exactly what they wrote down. As a matter of fact, these writings, the Bible says, are guided by and inspired by no one less than God himself. Listen to what the word of God says. You know this, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul wrote that. Once a Christian killer, 
then became a Christian missionary, wrote a couple of letters himself. And he said, what's going on here, as he writes to Timothy one of those letters, and what's going in all of Scripture is just this, God's behind it all. Now, you may not believe that, but here's the good news. It is not required for you to lean in and to give what they wrote serious examination. So I'm inviting you this morning to just lean in. But for now, I'm going to say that their writings were guided and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And please understand, those of us who believe that, none of us think one day that God said, Hey, Matt, come over here. Let's start writing a gospel. Let's start writing down the story of Jesus. No, we believe that he prodded, that he probably gave some kind of a thought to them, that there was something that was taking place in their life that wouldn't let them lose till they sat down and began writing this story of stories that was dropped in their laps. But they had been eyewitnesses to something that had changed them forever, and they had to tell somebody about it. And what I love is the sinking of God's hand in their writings and the obvious presence of themselves in their writings. All four of these different Gospels are just that. They're different. Unique in some ways because they're recording the same life, lived at the same time, but not written by the same men. They're different. This one that we're reading for the next couple of months as a church as we're studying the Gospel of John, it's different. It's not the same. But each one of them had to answer the question that I'm asking you this morning, and I'm going to ask it again. How would you tell the most important story ever told in human history? John's going to tell us how he did it, but he's also going to tell us why he did it. And he writes it at the end of the book, so I hope that this is not one of those um, spoilers. But here's what John's going to tell you and why he's telling you he's writing all of this. Let's show the passage of Scripture, guys. Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I hope you don't miss that. John wanted every single one of you hearing me this morning to believe. And he wanted you to have life in him. Life to the full. And how he goes about pointing you to that life, how he goes about telling the biggest story ever told is through a collection, listen to me, of little stories. Little stories. Now you've seen this kind of journalism before. It was used to tell one of the biggest stories of our time. The bombing of the World Trade Center. Go ahead and put that up. It's a story that forced journalists, when that occurred, to answer the question we've been asking this morning. How in the world would you report the biggest story of your life? How would you have reported the events of 9-11? A terrorist strike of such magnitude that when we see images of that trade center under attack, it still hits a nerve with us, doesn't it? Kind of caught you off guard, didn't it? Two hijacked airliners striking those two towers, two of the tallest in the world at the time, and all the events that were surrounding those moments. If you're under the age of 55, it is the biggest story. 
the biggest news story and i believe i can speak for all of you when i say that what we remember most from those events through the reporting of our modern day journalists is that we remember the stories and the anecdotes that have continually been retold since then you may not have known this but detailed studies have been written that calculate the stress factors that led to the toppling of those two towers the mass and the quantities of fuel that were contained in those airliners and the explosive effects on the steel all of that's been calculated and aren't you thrilled that you now know that rare is the person who cares about any of that because the information of those facts has little to do with the challenges continue to talk about from that event and what will impact some of our thoughts and some of our actions tomorrow are the personal stories of escape and rescue. Carol Merritt, a journalist, she will always tell of the fireball that was coming to her during the collapse of the very first tower when the fireman threw himself against the wall and shielded her. Now firefighters and rescue teams continue to evaluate methods of response and training techniques in life of what they experienced on that day in New York City. But those things matter little to most of us. Most of us won't read those journals. We won't read the revised training manuals. But we will remember and we do honor the people who died trying to rescue others. Since 9-11, passengers aboard airplanes now are trained in pre-flight response about how to react to threats of harm during a flight. And people pay attention to those things now, not out of respect to the airline or to government policy, but because they might have the opportunity to imitate Tom Burnett and Jeremy Glick and Todd Beamer the three men who led the charge to fight back against the terrorists who hijacked their plane, a fourth plane that was most likely headed for either the Capitol building or the White House itself. And they and many others rushed the terrorists and detoured that plane into a much safer area. It still cost them all their lives, but it saved hundreds. Now, when it came to communicating, this story of stories for those of us 55 and under. Those who are professionals, the Times and the Post, they chose to focus on the smaller stories to communicate the meaning that comes from it. They chose to show us those grand pictures that we all saw on the newspapers and on the news television sets. They show us all of it, but what they chose to help us understanding the meaning behind it all, just little, little stories. Little stories. And God's done the same thing for us. Little stories. Seem to matter most. Seem to impact most when we're trying to convey a meaningful story. Plato once said, the idea of God is too big for the human mind to get around, and so he chose to come to us as a baby. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Because we understand babies. We understand a boy getting lost and parents worried sick over it. Remember that? 
we understand having dinner with our friends and other adults questioning the company that we're keeping. We get betrayal. We get misunderstanding. We get families who think we're nuts. And so God saw fit to include a whole series of little stories about those events in Jesus' life to tell the big story of God coming in the flesh. Now, I share all of that with you as the longest introduction of my preaching career. Because I don't want it to become a surprise when God chooses to roll out as his first miracle what John calls a grand canyon of a sign at Cana at a wedding. Read the text with me. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour is not yet come. His mother simply said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars filled with water for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. And so they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everybody serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, John writes, because it's the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. And it revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we bring our little stories to you this morning, asking you some way, somehow, to help us understand how they fit into the bigger story of you and your son. We hear your promise that you will help us write a better story for our lives by doing so. Some of us feel like our stories are just so insignificant. Some of us feel like our stories are just so messed up. There's no way you could use those. There's just no way. There's no way you could make one better. There's no way you could make one meaningful. Would you help us through the power of your spirit? Would you move through us today to, to change that? Would you help someone maybe like Sissa say, I want him to write my story for me? Father, we realize we're not the only ones doing that. We realize First Baptist is doing a great job of pointing people to your son, Jesus. And we're asking you as they too worship and praise and focus on your word, would you help us all? to understand how our little story fits in the midst of your big story. We're asking it humbly in Jesus' name, and everyone said. The wedding was going so well. All according to plan. The guests were enjoying themselves. There was plenty of dancing. There was laughter, and then all of a sudden the wine was gone. Back then, wine was to a wedding what wedding cake is to a wedding. Can you imagine... Going to a wedding and there not being a cake? Probably not many of you have been to one. I haven't. In Jesus' day, you wouldn't attend a wedding without wine. You see, wine was a show of respect to your guests. To not offer wine was an insult. 
Well, Mary and Jesus' Jesus's mother is made aware that there's been a little social faux pas, a little problem here, a little innocent mistake, but a calamity nonetheless. No reason to call 911, but there's no way that you're going to sweep this mistake under the rug. So what in the world do you do? Well, let's be honest. What most of us know as problems could fall into the same category. The reality is seldom do we ever face true twin tower tragedies, but it seems so often our little tragedies are treated like that. Seldom do our crises redline the Richter scale. We're late for a meeting, leave our cell phone at home. We double book two very important people on a very important day. Somebody runs into us while, we're te while they're texting, because we would never do that right. But we were on our way to a concert that we had been booked for six months for and we couldn't wait. Now the waves that rock our small boats can get nasty. But most often, they're just not that all, they're not all that life-threatening. They're just not. But we have experienced being run aground by some poor responses to those little tragedies. What starts out as a drizzle all of a sudden turns into a storm packed with golf ball-sized hail and hurricane-force winds. We know problems. But listen to what John Dewey said. A problem well stated is a problem half solved. Mary's a personification of that truth. Watch her. Because that's exactly what she did. Now she could have exploded, like some of us, with something maybe ungracious and outrageous. What idiot forgets to bring enough wine? She could have snarled something sarcastic how does your failure to plan constitute my emergency? But she didn't explode. She didn't snarl. But she could have imploded. She could have said, oh, this is my fault. Why did anybody ask me to do this? I never get anything right. We know implosion. It is so easy in a moment of crisis for us to focus on everything but the solution to a problem. But Mary didn't do that. She simply looked at the storm and gave it some thought. And then she took it to the person who could do something about it. John writes, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Now, a quick observation for anybody looking how to handle life's unexpected squalls that come. I want you to notice this morning, Mary took her problem to Jesus before she took it to anybody else. Can I say that again? Mary took her problem to Jesus before she took it to anybody else. For most of us, even Jesus' followers, that's not our first response, and isn't that a shame? You've heard the old story. Some deacons were facing a tense moment in one of their meetings. There was a problem, and they, after a lengthy debate, weren't coming to a solution. As a matter of fact, it was really tense in the room, and someone said, well, I think we need to pray. And then someone said, has it come to that? Old joke, but a present reality for most of us. Christians, please, why is it that we take our needs to God in prayer as a last option rather than the first? I can think of two reasons. One, for most of us, God is still optional. For most of us, God's still optional. 
our dependency on him is minimal. We live as if we are more capable of dealing with our problems than he is. That's why. Our kids are here this weekend. My daughter Lauren and her husband Tyler, and we've had a great, great weekend. And by God's grace, combined with their hard work, our kids are able to live on their own. Now, I know for some of you that sounds like a fantasy, but I'm telling you it can be real. And we are grateful. Their mobility and their maturity is good and is exactly what we hoped would happen in their lives. But I want you to know, deep down, parents hope that they never get too grown up to call their mom and dads and ask for help. Amen, parents? And wise are the children who do. God feels the same way. The only difference is our kids may actually live a good life without our help. You will never live a good life without his help. You just won't. Not the life to the full variety that he wants to give you. Now, for some of you, independency is not your struggle. Feeling insignificant is. Sure, Mary can take her problems to God's son. She's Mary, for heaven's sakes. You don't want to be bothered with my problems. Come on, a lost set of keys? A raise from my employer? Passing my state boards? The money in my bank account? He's got terrorists to deal with. He has biological warfare to deal with. He has a president to keep off Twitter to deal with. I don't want to trouble him with my little hailstorms when he's got tsunamis, real tsunamis to deal with. Well, if that describes the significance you believe that you have with God, can I, can I share with you a small verse, a little verse that I think has some big impact? It's Psalms chapter 18 and verse 19. Let me read it first to you. Because he delights in me, he saved me. Now I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Here we go. Because he delights in me, he saved me. Now I'm going to ask you to emphasize the words in yellow. Because he delights in me, he saved me. One more time. Because he delights in me, he saved me. And he did. I know you thought he saved you because of your great choices or your great attitude. But if that were the case, your salvation would be history. When your resolve created or your mouth began to drip with cynicism. Since that there are a lot of reasons why God saves you to bring glory to himself, to fulfill the demands of justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. But the most meaningful reason he saves you, listen to me, he's incredibly fond of you. He loves having you around so much that momentarily he experienced hell for you so that he could have you eternally in heaven with him. Hear the words of the Lord in Isaiah 62 and verse 5. They're not mine, they're his. A man, as a man rejoices over his bride, so I will rejoice over you. I love what Max Lucado often said. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If God had a wallet, your photo would be in it. Now please don't just hear that as cute. Don't just smile at that. Receive it, all right? Because in a few weeks, God is about to bring each of you some flowers through what we call spring. Every morning, he causes the sun to rise for you. When you talk, he listens. 
He can live anywhere in the universe, but when you open your heart to him like Sissa did today, he moves in to you. And the gift he placed in a manger for you at Christmas, do you remember that one? Wow. It all says, I'm crazy about you. You. Please hear that. You may have many things that you could worry over, but one of them should not be that you're a nuisance. All you need to concern yourself with is what he tells you to do. Don't run by that one. All you need to concern yourself with is what he tells you to do. And for that, take note of the sequence of events that unfold here in the story of John. Scripture says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled the jars to the top. And then he said to them, now take some out and give it to the master of the feast. And so they took the water to the master. And when he tasted it, the water had become wine. I can't tell you how much I wish I could have been that servant doing that task. I would have loved that. A servant at a wedding stops in what he's doing and starts to take a cup, just a cup, of something to the master of the feast. Now that's a wedding planner, okay? It's Bible for wedding planner. But notice the sequence of events. This is huge. First, the jars are filled with water. And then Jesus sends over a servant to take the water to the wedding planner, not the wine, but the water to the wedding planner. Now, if I'm a servant, you do what you're told. So I would be taking the water to the wedding planner, but I would have been thinking all the way, what am I going to say when I get there? And he tastes it. Cool water? <laughs> Best water you ever had, huh? But when he gets there, you know what the wedding master says, what the wedding planner says? He says, great wine. Great wine. The head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And then they bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. But you've kept the good wine until now. Do yourself a favor. And note that the water turned to wine after the servant obeyed, not before. So what if the servant had refused? What if he had said out loud, this is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard of. I'm not doing this. No, better question. What if when the master speaks, you refuse? This is the craziest thing I have ever been asked to do. Not on your life. It's totally possible, isn't it? Because God isn't beyond <clears throat> asking some of us to do some pretty gutsy things. When the money is tight, doesn't he still ask us to bring some offering to him? You've been obviously offended and you cry out, God, did you see what they did? He says, yeah, would you please forgive them? Someone lets you down and doesn't follow them with a promise and God asks you to be patient with them while he grows them up through that failure. We can't see God's face, but he still asks us to pray, believing he hears us and cares enough to do what's best for us. None of those things are requests from anyone but a master. And he expects them to be acted on, especially those who said, I'm yours. They're still in high demand. 
So, here's what we know about God. Jesus is going to put on flesh. He's going to come and live among us. And then in 18 chapters, again, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to be in a garden. He's going to be agonizing over what he's been asked to do. He's not going to see how what he's being asked to do makes sense. And he says, I will take this cup and I will do whatever you need for me to do. I will drink whatever you need me to drink from it. Not seeing how it matters for good, but I will do it for you because I know you love me and want the best for me and what's best for them. That's what we know. So what do you say the next time you face a Twin Tower moment or just a simple frustrating one that you probably will experience in the next hour? You follow the example of Mary. You identify the problem. You'll have it half solved. You present it to Jesus. He's more than capable of helping. And you do what he says, no matter how crazy. If you will, you have his word on it, that you will have life to the full. You will have a life that matters. Promise. And just maybe, your little story may be the means to someone understanding how this big story could be real. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for bringing us here today. And again, we, we need your help. Our stories do seem so small, some of them so broken, and we need your help. And if someone has come here today and hearing this sign, hearing this story of what you did at the wedding in Cana gives them hope you could do that, in them, would you please give them the courage, as crazy as it may feel or seem, to step out and come put you on on baptism, just as Sissa did, and say to the world, I, I'm tired of trying to do this myself. Please, God, help me live this life. And Father, if you've brought a brother or sister here today who's just made a mess out of their life, They've pledged to be yours. They've welcomed you into their heart, but they've they honestly have been ignoring you. And they've been doing things on their own, much more so than ever, including you in any of it. And they realize that's just not right. And it's death. It's been death. It's been so hard. Would you give them the courage to do the crazy thing and believe that your blood washes away not just sins one time, but constantly? Every time that we come confessing them to you and admitting we've just blown it, your word promises that. And so would you help them believe that, as crazy as that may sound? Fathers, we stand and give you praise and honor and glory. We ask you move among us through that same spirit that turned water into wine. Would you turn some of our brokenness into life again? In the name of Jesus, everyone said. Let's praise him and stand and sing.